If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. And uh, despite what your bulletin might say, or despite what your first push notification on the app might say, we're actually going to be in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. And so if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles there. Uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to just acknowledge that today is Graduate Recognition Sunday, and I want to welcome the graduates and their families here to Iron City Baptist Church and to say that we care about you, we want what's best for you, and honestly, we know that the Word of God taking root into your heart is going to be the best thing that can ever happen to you, and so we strive every day to make that happen and to help you in that process. Along the way, over the next few weeks, as you go through your graduation ceremonies, as you go through baccalaureate, as you have parties and guests, people are going to come up to you and they're going to talk to you about believing in what you can do and believing and having faith. And we as a general in society, we're really good at just encouraging people to believe and to, to have faith and to just keep on keeping on and just keep believing. If you believe enough, to prove that out, I want to read a few quotes to you. Don't be fooled by its commonplace appearance. Like so many things, it's not what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that counts. Another one. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. They get a little bit better. All it takes is faith and trust. This is sounding good. You may have heard some of these phrases in a few sermons. But he's got the faith of a child. Most people don't believe something can happen until it already has. The only way to achieve the impossible is to believe it to be possible. It's inspiring, isn't it? All you have to do is believe. Then you will see everything. Those do sound quite convincing at first, don't they? They sound like... I mean, this is, these are the things, graduates and parents, and fa these are the things you're going to be hearing that may have even said some of these things similar to them. But I'm going to go through the list of where those actually came from because I don't want you to think that they're biblical statements. The first one was from the children's movie Aladdin. The second one, Cinderella. The third one, my favorite play of all time, Peter Pan. The fourth, It's a Wonderful Life. The fifth one comes from World War Z. The sixth one, Alice in Wonderland. And the last one, all you have to do is believe. Well, that's the Lego movie. You see... We're really good at telling people to believe in something, to trust in something, to have faith in something. The problem is that the object of what we're trusting in and believing in 
has been misplaced from what it should be to what's easy for us to believe. And as we come to this text today, I want you to keep that in mind. What is the object of my faith? Because that's more important than the amount of your faith. Because you can have faith in me all you want to. And I promise you that at some point I'm going to let you down. You can have faith in yourself all you want to. But at some point, you will fail yourself. So who should be the object of our faith? Stand with me as we read God's word to see what it has to say on the matter. In Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were greatly distressed. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. So as we come to this text on this day, I want to first of all encourage you because I have been encouraged by the word of God over this past week and weeks of study. This is not the actual text I had intended to preach some month or so ago, but due to uh, Cody's change in schedule, we shifted Aaron's text back, and so we had to realign ourselves and readjust what we were going to do. But at this very moment, I can stand here and say I praise God for his sovereign providence and the little means of providence in which he uses to change us because of how he has used this text in my heart and in my life. And my prayer for you today is that you will receive this text through the Spirit of God and it will have as much impact on you as it has on me. Because I can't do anything, but the Spirit and the Word can do much. The disciples came to figure that out a little bit themselves as well. You see, Jesus... And the three had gone up to the mount. And Jesus had been transfigured before their eyes. And Peter, as this bowl said, hey, let's make a memorial for all of you guys. And he had put them uh, with Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same plane. And God stepped in and intervenes in this. Hey, Peter, 
Now, it's not about these guys. This is my beloved son. Pay attention to him. Listen to his word. Hear what he has to say. Don't worry about these guys. You focus your attention right here. And as this happens, you can imagine the excitement of Peter and James and John and just the enthusiasm of what they've seen and now they're, they're hiking back down the mountain and they come down and it's, it seems to be the next day this is not just some short walk up a few steps this is a, a journey down the mountain and all of it there's a, there's a little bit of a crowd gathered and they can tell something's going on something's stirring and they don't know exactly what but it, something's not quite right they can hear some of the things that are being said and it sounds like something's gone wrong Doesn't it often seem like after the highest moments, after the greatest mountaintops, when we come back to reality that it seems to be the darkest day and the gravest of situations and the most difficult of storms that we walk through? Much of that has to do with our perception, but much of of it has to do with the simple fact that we live in a fallen world. And in this world, we're not on a mountaintop. We are in a valley, and we see glimpses of a mountaintop. And the more we're focused on our Savior, we see that more. But right now, we're living in the midst of depravity and decay. And that's the world with which we're sending out our graduates into. It's the world in which we are living. But... So they come, and of course something has gone wrong. And really, if if you're reading this, especially in this context of of Matthew and what's been said, you you automatically almost think back to Exodus, right? You think back to Moses coming off of the mount. He's got the tablets of the law in his hands. He's coming to bring the proclamation to God's people. And all of a sudden he hears the roar of the people and they're worshiping these false gods. And their, their eyes have turned from the truth of God that has led them out to the pagan worship that was around them. Great, wonderful moment. Rocked by the lack of faith and trust in the community. And you see his response in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes and they come in. And so immediately this, this man sees Jesus in the three coming. He runs up to him and he kneels his face before him. And, and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on him. He desperately needs to be healed of you. He's, we've come to your disciples, but, but Jesus, these nine men right here, they couldn't do anything to help us. They couldn't accomplish the task that we came to have accomplished. They could not heal my son. Can you help me? And as he does this, we see him coming to the Savior. We see him coming to the one who knows. But but truly, he came to the disciples. And during that time frame, it really should have been that The disciples should have been able to take care of this situation. The disciples had already been engaged and empowered with the ability to cast out demons. They had already done these things. We see this in Matthew chapter 10 that they had been empowered. They had gone out and they came back and gave this wonderful praise report to Jesus. Even the demons listen to us when we speak in your name. But now, sitting at the foot of the mountain, they've been brought one who desperately needs their help. They are powerless to do anything about it. Have you ever felt powerless 
to do anything about the situation, the circumstances of your life? I think most of us probably have. Most of us have probably felt helpless and afraid. And those of us who haven't have come to those who do feel helpless and afraid for help. And they have been no help. And so he cries out to Jesus. And Jesus' first response. Oh, you faithless and twisted generation. You faithless and twisted generation. He's, he's speaking here not just to his disciples. He's, he's kind of almost ignoring the man and his son and speaking out to a broader context here because let me just be clear. In this passage, your Bible may title it, Jesus heals the boy with a demon. That's not the primary focus of this text. That's almost secondary. It's what God used to get his point across, but that's not it. Jesus is it. And he's been building to this for chapters now. So he says, you faithless and twisted generation. Because you see what Jesus knew about this generation that they were in, what he understood about the people who had gathered is that they were faithless. They had no faith in who he was as the Messiah. They had no faith in who he was as Lord. They had no true faith in who he was as the Son of Man or the Son of God. They only had some thought that he might be able to do something. And that lack of faith wasn't because of lack of evidence. You see, today we live in a society that is twisted and faithless. Again, we're sending our children, our graduates out. We're going out into a society that is twisted and faithless. And it is not because they lack evidence. You're not going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. Apologetics has been done and it's answered every single question that the world and the disbelieving could ask. And it's done so logically and thoughtfully and spirit-filled and scripture-laden. And the answers are there. It is not for lack of evidence that the people then were faithless and twisted. And it is not for lack of evidence that the people in our generation are twisted and faithless. It is the fact that they are twisted. It is the fact that some of your Bible say, may say perverted. It may say a, a variety of different things. But the bottom line is they've chosen not to believe what they understand to be true. They've chosen not to believe what they see. They've chosen not to believe the truths of Scripture as they have been plainly laid out. As the evidence has been laid bare, they've looked at it and they have rejected it just as the people of Jesus' day did just as the leaders of Israel are soon to do when Jesus comes before them for trial. They're going to look at the evidence. They're going to have seen the mighty works of a man of God, the God-man, God become flesh, and they're going to reject it no matter what their eyes and their minds and their hearts tell them. 
they're going to reject the truth. And because of that rejection, they are faithless. And because of that faithlessness, they reject. And it's just this ongoing cycle that builds on itself and does not end until the Spirit of God intercedes directly into a heart and into a life and pulls them out of that death and out of that darkness and brings them to the truth and the reality of the truth and opens their eyes so that they might see. It's not going to be what we do. It's not going to be the logic or the wisdom of men. I love apologetics, and I think it's a good art and a good thing to do. But we don't need more apologetics. We need more word in our people. We need more scripture in the people of God. We need more power in the people of God. We need more understanding in the people of God. We need more commitment from the people of then they can go into a faithless and twisted generation and interact with them. Because you know what? We're sending high school graduates out onto a college campus that is hostile toward their faith. We're sending them out and, and we as the church are going to bemoan the fact that they leave the faith and they walk away even though we have not taken up the responsibility God gave us as parents in the church and prepared them for the journey ahead. We have failed them, and we failed them pretty bad. We haven't prepared them, yet we will bemoan them, bemoan it when they leave the church. But let me ask you a question. In your bulletin today, you've got an insert of ten names. If they're not your family... How many of them do you know? Church, how many of them did you seek out to have a relationship with so that you personally, through the power of God, might impact their lives? See, what I do know is that those that leave the church typically have never had an adult in the church care anything about them that was not their family. We've taught them a lot of good things and we've told them about Jonah and the, the fish and we've told them about David and Goliath at least five times a year from the time they were grown up. But we never taught them how to take the word of God into their heart and told them that it must change who they are, that they must have faith in the one true God, not in this simple, easy believism, but in a way that develops and changes because that's what's about to what the disciples are seeing. They've done what God has called them to do. They saw who Jesus was. It was not just a few days ago Peter is laying out this beautiful confession of faith of who Jesus is. They hear it, they receive it. He's told them that he's going to die on their behalf and be raised from the dead. They still don't get it. When Jesus is away, they can't even do the thing that he sent them out to do on a regular basis. Because their focus clearly has been lost. Their focus and trust and faith in Jesus ha has gone to the point where it seems that they now are counting on themselves. Because what Jesus says is, bring him here to me. Your Bible probably has a period at the end of that statement. It needs to have an exclamation point. Jesus is showing that he's frustrated with the situation 
Because he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? His disciples know that he's leaving. He's already laid it out one time, and he's about to lay it out for them again. And he's been alluding to it the whole time that he's been ministering to them. But how long will I be here? How long will you have me to run to? How long will you have me right here beside you to do everything that you can't do? It's time for you to step up and learn and to receive the power that the Spirit has offered to you. Place your faith in me and move forward into the kingdom of God. And Jesus rebukes the demon. We're not even told there's a demon until this point. Jesus rebukes the demon and the boy is healed immediately as the demon leaves. Can you imagine the disciples at this point? Because what's the next statement? Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Have you ever just really knew, I mean, you've know, gone into a situation, I, can, I got this, I can do this. Man, I, there is not a problem right here. And then right over here, after going through the situation, you realize, ooh, I didn't do that. I failed miserably at that, right? You look in the mirror and you say, man, it wasn't that you just didn't do a good job or you didn't get it right. You failed. We need to be able to say that about ourselves. I, I, th- I think this text is super encouraging, but sometimes the most encouragement means standing in front of the mirror and acknowledging before God that I am a miserable, no good sinner and I fell on my face. And I am in desperate, desperate need of him. But can you imagine the shame? Because what do they do? They, they don't just stand up in the hey, Jesus, why can't we do it? No, I mean, I can imagine if I'm sitting there and I'm the disciple, Jesus is standing there, and as soon as he starts this rebuke, my head's down, my face is down, I am just all over here just trying to, yeah, y'all look at Jesus. Yeah, y'all look at Jesus. Y'all look at Jesus. I'm not going to dare ask the question publicly, am I? Say, come to him in private. Jesus, why could we not heal the man? You know, sometimes we just need to stop beating around the bush with things and be honest with people. You start in the mirror, but then we have to deal with things properly, don't we? Jesus, why could we not do this? Your little faith. He didn't sugarcoat it. He said, well, you know, guys, y'all have done this before, and y'all have been learning a lot, and you're really growing in your faith, and, and you're really beginning to understand who I am. He says, your little faith. Direct and to the point. Guys, you failed to receive what I've been teaching. You failed to move the way I called you to move. You failed. But you know what? That's okay. Because that's not the last time they fa- they're going to fail, and it wasn't the first time that they had failed, and Jesus stuck with them. He stuck beside them. He held firm to his truth and his calling on their lives. And he meant it when he said that they were his and they had remained with him and the Father was holding them to him and he was not going to let them go and he was not going to allow them to get away. I know this statement, this proverbial statement that he makes, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved and nothing is impossible for you. I know that in a twisted, right, remember where we live, remember where they were, in a twisted generation, in a twisted 
and perverse generation, in a faithless and a twisted generation, people have taken this text and so misapplied it that we have to understand when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and remember this is the 12, this is the, 12, this is the, the small group of disciples that he's talking to. He's not talking about the amount of faith that they have. Because what's he say? Just, a, just the tiniest seed of faith that is in you. Not the mustard plant. Not the full growth. Not the one with the shoot growing out of it. The seed, the thing that you put in the ground hoping something's going to come out. The seed itself. If you have faith just that big, they had that faith. They'd left everything and followed him. It wasn't the quantity of the faith. It was the quality of the faith. And the quality of the faith is determined by the object of the faith. You see, what we can glean from this text is it appears that as the man brought his son, the disciples stepped up and said, we will take care of this. Instead of holding firm to their faith in Christ, they held firm to faith in themselves. You remember the the movie illustrations that I gave in the beginning? I said Peter Pan was my favorite play, and it really is. I I thoroughly enjoy that for some reason. I don't know exactly why, but that's what I like. But do you remember the scene when Tinkerbell has died? I do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies. I do believe. And if you're at a play, what do you have? I do believe in fairies. And the whole crowd starts saying, I do and then the light comes back on. Really? That's just not the way it works, is it? You just pump yourself up enough to where you believe enough that all of a sudden everything happens? No. Life doesn't work that way. Spirituality doesn't work that way. Christianity doesn't work that way. The Bible doesn't work that way because God doesn't work that way. That's not it. The object of their faith was misplaced. It was placed on themselves. And it's not the the quantity, but the quality. And the quality is determined by the object. And now, let's take this back and remember the context. They just came off the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter has put Moses, an awesome, awesome leader, and Elijah, a wonderful prophet, up on par with Jesus, the God-man. The Father has spoken and rebuked him and corrected him. And what did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, don't allow your faith to be in yourself or in your background or in these great and mighty men that I have used tremendously. Put your eyes on my son and your focus on him and draw your faith from him and what he can do, not what you can do no matter what you've done in the past. Their faith has been misplaced. It's put on themselves and not on Jesus. And when we walk in the truth of Jesus' life, when we walk in the truth of a relationship that's laid bare before him, it will be possible for us. Anything will be possible for us. And that's not to mean that I can make this podium move. It's what the will of God is. And as I enter deeper and deeper into that relationship, the more I know God, the more I know Christ, the more I love him, the more I understand him, the more I will be able to faithfully follow him. 
and the more his will will be laid out before my life and I will be able to run after that. Because, you know, I believe truly that God can do absolutely anything he desires. I have no doubt at all in my life. I have no doubt that my faith would tell me that God created everything from nothing, no matter what my science teacher might tell me. I believe that God is the God who sovereignly calls us and brings us to life and will be there for us in eternity, ushering us in. I believe all of that. I believe that I know God has done miraculous events on this earth and he has even done them through men and women just like you. Though he has never used me to do them, I have seen healings come. Nowhere will I ever tell you that that's not real. Because it is. God is a powerful God and I have faith in him. But I also know that the will of God is not always our will. It's not always for us to decide. And as many of you I know this from experience. I know that sometimes I pray knowing, not just believing, knowing that God can do everything and God chooses not to do the thing I plead with him to do. I'll know along with the Apostle Paul that it doesn't matter how fervently or how many times I pray. Sometimes it's not the will of God and he chooses not to heal for his greater glory and for his greater purposes. And we must align ourselves and focus on our Savior and understand that in the midst of that, our faith is only in him. God can do anything, and he will use us to do great things. Don't do like the disciples and start trusting in your own ability and in your own recognition and in what you've done in the past to mean that that's exactly the way it's going to happen in the future. God doesn't act that way. He doesn't do that. And as we walk through this, we see this just absolute failure of faith on the part of the disciples. This week, as I've studied this text, you see what I've got. If you you were to come into my study and you were to see my notes, I've got the scripture and I've got my, my notes and I've got my outline for the sermon. And right over here, I've got the notes for Aaron. This is what you need. This is what you had to take out of this text because what I can tell you is before the word of God proclaimed by a man is going to take root in your heart, it better take root here. The proclaimer better believe what he's saying. You know, I, I think we've come to this and we've said too often, and I'm guilty of this. I can have a good plan. Man, I can put this stuff together. And I've got a way we're going to move this thing forward and we're going to do step one and we're going to do step two and then step three is going to take place and number four and number five. And man, what's it going to look like right out there in five years? But then we come to it depending on us, depending on our own ability, depending on the way we've done it and the way it has been done and what we presume on God that he's going to do the same thing for us again just because we want him to. 
and I'll admit something here. I've moved my focus from letting God work and move to what Aaron can do. And I can't do very much, guys. You've got some great pastors, some great elders. But we can't do very much. And we can't do anything of eternal significance without the glory of God and the strength of God and God doing it and using us to accomplish his task. It's not going to happen any other way. So I'd ask that you forgive me and that we focus together on Christ and that our faith would be moved to what he is able to do and accomplish and that we would move and work only in the direction in the areas in which he has called us to move and to work. Because then, as the proverbial statement is really saying, you can do mighty things, even difficult things, through the power of God, and nothing is impossible to Him. We've got to draw our focus back on Christ. Understanding that we're living out our faith in the midst of the kingdom of God, in the kingdom that is right now, but also in the kingdom that is to come. And Jesus again reminds his disciples in chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, now remember, he's spoken to the 12. And he's told the 12 explicitly, I'm going to die. Peter rebukes him, I'm going to die. Peter, get behind me, Satan, I'm going to die. And now he brings it out again. But now, because of what we see from Jesus' birth until now, until his return, the kingdom of God has been growing and expanding and moving forward. And nothing, not even the lack of faith of the twelve, is going to prevent that from moving forward. Not our lack of faith. Not your lack of faith. Not your ability or inability or mine is going to prevent the kingdom of God from moving forward. The kingdom will move forward. And Jesus says this is what's going to happen. And as he does that, now he's expanding the audience. The disciples have come. There's more of them now. It's not just the 12. They've gathered together. There seems to be a larger group. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be betrayed is what it probably says in the majority of your Bibles. It's one of those words that can mean either. It can be taken even passively. Is it going to be the men who turn him over or is it going to be God himself who turns him over? Both is the answer to the question. But he brings in this new element that someone is going to turn him over. Someone is going to be betray him as he plays on this word son of man and the to the hands of men, they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day, but they still didn't get it, did they? Their faith has been brought back. They've, he's reoriented their focus, but they still don't get it. It still hasn't completely sunk in, and it will not until the time when they see him raised again. And they were greatly distressed. You see, our, our lack of faith our faith in the wrong thing is going to lead us to fail. 
but we have a Savior still calling us back. Still calling our names, drawing us to himself. And as he does, he has the promise of suffering. He has the promise of death. He has the promise of not getting along with this world. Isn't that a great promise that we can take from the scripture and go run with it, right? You know what it really is. You know, the last two weeks we've looked at the cost of discipleship and the cost of disciple making. Jesus is reorienting our faith, drawing us back to the truth of who he is, moving us forward to what he's going to do and say, come along with me. What will your response be? Graduates, as you enter into this world, it's going to come at you and it's not going to be fair. It's going to be brutal and you're going to fail. But you still have a loving God who's crawling out your name. Church, our graduates don't have to leave the church when they leave here. Focus your faith on God and see if it won't reorient the way you deal with them when they're children and when they're students and see if it won't change their hearts as the word of God is brought closer into you and closer into them. And all of this realizing that yes, we live in a fallen and depraved world, and yes, we're living in the kingdom of God, but we have not seen it fully fulfilled. And we can hope and long for that. Today, as we offer an invitation, I would ask you, have you ever come to the point where you put your faith and trust in the Savior? You may have straight away you may have misplaced your faith at the moment you may be but have you ever come to that point in time where you place your heart and life in the hands of a savior knowing not just thinking knowing that he was more than sufficient for everything that was to come if you haven't if your faith is now misplaced Come speak with one of our elders. Let us take you to the word of God and show you how to respond with that. Let us pray. Father, we come before you right now.